Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Emily, how was your week? Oh, my week has really not been good at all. <laughs> I've, I've been feeling... I've had such bad fatigue. I've been feeling just so awful in terms of all of my long COVID symptoms. Such bad muscle aches, the tinnitus, the... I don't know. But uh, now both of my children have uh, got COVID. So, yeah, let's see what happens. How was your week? It was okay. I'm getting over having had COVID over from the beginning of January. And do you think you've got a sort of hangover of long COVID symptoms from it or or how are they feeling? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had managed to get my heart to let me go up and down the stairs at between 100 and 110 beats a minute. And now I'm so winded going up and down the stairs. It's 140. So any kind of progress I made seems to have been knocked back. I think that's the nature of this, isn't it? Yeah, and that, but I, that's when I—that's what I find quite hard—is when you feel like you've made those gains, and then and then you get the knockback. I mean, obviously, COVID's quite a massive thing for your your system to take and your system to deal with. Um, be interested to know if there is something that we should be taking, or something that we should be doing to boost our immune system somehow when we know we're going to get that massive onslaught from a new infection well listen i honestly think i may have saved myself being really quite poorly by taking your meds by taking the culture scene the anti-inflammatory trying to protect any inflammation or at least dampen it down yeah by taking it proactively when i didn't know that i had covid but i probably knew i was going to get it yeah and looking back i had all my long covid symptoms I had a flare do you remember before i even knew i was positive because none of my natural flow tests coming back positive but I felt awful yeah so I'm hoping that by doing that I'd save myself it wasn't until six weeks post infection that I started to feel any longer the first time yeah yeah so people get asking me oh it was okay it wasn't too bad it was quite mild wasn't it and I'm like well yeah I don't know but ask me again in six weeks yeah I mean that's going to be the interesting thing isn't it let's find out what happens to us I'm kind of hoping that we it it just complete you know the way there was all the talk that the vaccine would um basically clear out the viral residue from our systems I'm I'm at the moment hoping that that's what Omicron is going to do to us. I mean, I think that there's absolutely no scientific basis for that whatsoever, but I just like to live in hope. You know me. <laughs> yeah, not to pour water on that, but the, having the vaccine didn't help at all, did it? <laughs> it didn't help at all. It, it was not good. But it's one of my favourite theories, this virus, this residual virus in your body. Yeah, there's something, isn't there? There's something that's just staying there. All right, well, this week's guest, Dr. Bruce Passon, he's obviously very accomplished. He's a former director of virology at Stanford, isn't he? Yes, and made a big discovery in the 1990s that helped um, HIV research. So he's very much in this field. Then left Stanford and that just started his own company. Yeah, InCellDX. Which specialises in 
diagnostics. He's turned his hand to looking at long COVID and has come up with a theory that basically looks at the spike protein and the spike protein residue in, in in our cells, effectively, isn't it? And the paper on that was published this week. Yeah, so we had a talk with him. He's very articulate, obviously very knowledgeable about what he's doing. But there's been mixed reviews. Yeah. There? In order to do some due diligence, we went and found some people who've done this protocol here in the UK. Uh, numbers are small. Yeah, it was a clinical trial of 40 patients, wasn't it? Not just talking about the medical side of it. The medical side... People that we spoke to said it didn't help. Um, but that's not discounting all the other people that say it does help. But we believe around 14,000 patients in the US have tried his protocol. The most prominent issues that they were talking about was the way in which they were dealt with the staff. Um, it was the communication. It was um, the idea that they had to be part of a Facebook group. That's where they were logging their um, symptoms and any progression. It was described as odd. And I think that there are other um, uh, places that we've read, uh, people being very disparaging about the fact that um, this has cost them a lot of money. I think that at this stage, we have to be honest about the fact that the majority of treatments, that if people are actually going and seeking treatments, it is costing people money because of the... Uh, restrictions on off-license drug use and um, developmental drug use in in these countries. Um, so it's wishful thinking to think that you can get this kind of treatment for free at the moment, whilst we are this early in the trials. So listen to this interview. Emily and I, we had an open mind about it. And for me, I was fairly convinced by the end that I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't say no to trying it. Mm. There were no side effects cited you know that it would be harmful to try it and yeah. like anything else we've tried a few things we haven't tried the aphoresis you know it's too expensive for me frankly it's too expensive yeah for, for me it's trying something invasive versus trying something that it might not help but it's not it's not risky or or, or dangerous for me it seems more sensible I've been reading your work. It's fascinating. And Emily and I have been heavily into talking to experts and doctors for the last almost a year now. Could you just sum up how you started looking at long COVID? It's a very interesting story. Um, it was all about being in the right place uh, at the right time. So in uh, the beginning of January, the first week in January of 2020, I was in China. Oh, wow. <laughs> because we had just developed a machine learning um, based immune assay to monitor CAR T therapy in cancer. And we were meeting with a company in Shanghai and uh, I had a trip scheduled to go to Wuhan to meet with one of our customers. And while I was in Shanghai, we talked to that customer and they basically said, um, this is not a good time to come to Wuhan. And, um, and then, you know, we, I, I said, why, you know, what, what, what's going on? And they said, oh, there's a outbreak of an emerging um, virus. Uh, and then they called it an immune virus. And I said, well, that's interesting. What's, what's an immune virus? Because I've been a virologist for, you know, 25 years. And, you know, obviously there's interplay between the virus and the immune system, but this one in particular caused uh, significant 
immunologic abnormalities that were actually pretty severe. And that was really my first foray into um, the so-called cytokine storm. So I, being a pathologist, obviously looked at the immune profile and came back to InCellDX and said, you know, what can we do about this both uh, diagnostically and, you know, are there therapeutic targets there? And, and clearly since day one, I really felt that it was a CCR5 antagonist that could really help this disease out by controlling the influx of immune cells into the lungs and also reprogramming macrophages and keeping them from producing um, what other immunologists have called um, uh, destructive cytokines like interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, others, VEGF. And um, we really... Uh, and so the X really thought that that was the approach that could ameliorate um, some of these uh, severe and critical symptoms. And so, and that was in the acute phase. That was in the acute phase. And then we participated in, uh, I think, at least three trials using CCR5 antagonists in the acute phase, a total of maybe a thousand patients. And, and I think what came out of that, at least for me, was patients were better, patients were leaving the hospital, they weren't dying. But at the end of the day, their immune system at 30 days, 60 days, 90 days was by no stretch of the imagination normal. Okay. And a lot of it was resource driven. You know, oh, you're stable, you're okay. Um, let's get you out of the hospital because we have 10 other people that need your bed. And what we were doing is basically sending people home that had significant immune abnormalities. And a lot of the long haulers will say they had a period where they actually felt good. Then right around um, three months, which is the definition of long haulers, they started getting these symptoms, brain fog, tinnitus, joint and muscle aches, shortness of breath, uh, headaches. Um, all of that started coming on. Now that we've seen 14,000 uh, long haulers in our program, others, the symptoms never really subsided. To any great extent. They they had them, they always had them. Maybe they got a little bit better, but they never really went away. So it was the summer of 2020 where we had an abundance of data and we said, what's the difference between these individuals who have these symptoms 90 days plus after uh, acute infection and acute infection? And that's when we turned to um, machine learning and AI, we started with somewhere around uh, about 150 biomarkers in acute COVID to see, you know, what was really abnormal in these individuals and, and how we might address that through treatment. And we basically put all this data through machine learning and AI and said, you know, what's the difference between the immune abnormalities in acute COVID and the immune abnormalities in long COVID? And sure enough, there was a very, very distinct difference between the two immune um, uh, abnormalities in long COVID versus acute COVID. And that was our first publication in Frontiers in Immunology, which was the machine learning um, deciphering this, this pattern or signature of immune uh, dysregulation in in long haulers. And could you see that um, a different immunological response was going to take place or subsequently, could you tell who the different immunological response was going to take place in? 
during the acute phase or is it is it completely separate? That's such a great question. I think that's still one of the unanswered questions for us. I mean, we're looking at things like fractal kind receptor polymorphisms and fractal kind receptor uh, expression to see what factors may cause somebody to be a long hauler and someone not to be. I think that's a big um, unanswered question now, but uh, what really happened in the summer of 2020 is I got together with a, a group of physicians and uh, Ram Yogendra and Pervy Parikh, who's an um, immunologist at NYU. We all got together and said, wow, there, there is something real um, in these long haulers. They were being gaslighted and, and, and ignored by physicians and said, oh, you have PTSD or you're still getting over acute COVID. And we were really the first ones to step up and say, no, you actually have something. And I can't tell you in terms of just um, their, their mental state to hear that somebody believed that they were having these symptoms and to hear that somebody found uh, something that was actually abnormal was half the battle. Yeah. Because all of the routine blood tests are coming back normal. Noreen and I both have long COVID. Our blood tests have been pretty much normal yeah. across the board. And Absolutely. that that belief, well, I mean, I was gaslighted for a, a year before I got someone to say, yeah, you, you have right. long COVID. Right. And yet I got long COVID before it was even a phenomenon, before I even knew about it. So the kind of suggestion that it's somehow manufactured in my brain, I didn't have any knowledge that that could happen after a virus. And and you're not alone. I would say, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of patients that we spoke to in the summer of 2020, um, that was that was the theme. And I'll I'll even say that we, we treated... Um, uh, a U.S. congressman's son here in the United States uh, in the winter of 2020 and early 2021. And he went to a hearing in Congress where the head of the NIH sat in front of Congress and said, well, there's no cytokine abnormalities in, in long COVID. You know, it's just, it's not even an entity, right? And this congressman thankfully stood up and said, uh, wait a minute, have you seen this this paper that's coming out from Dr. Patterson and and in Cell DX, and we sent it to them, and uh, and I think that was really the first time where they saw firsthand the immunologic abnormalities in um, in long COVID, and now since you know other people have seen uh, the same thing, the increase in cytokine elevations, different cytokine profiles, uh, immune disturbances. The other thing was we were the first to identify that there was a marker for clotting that was elevated. And this was over a year ago. And we reported that in our first paper. And now everyone's talking about clotting, which we've been talking about for, for over a year. And in our treatment regimen really addresses the clotting. We have not had a single patient out of 14,000 have any kind of clotting um, manifestation. So again, I think we too, uh, as a company, and got out in front of this, uh, I would say, too quickly, where people were like, wait a minute, we don't even know if there's this thing called long COVID. And you're already saying that it's vascular inflammation and 
and there's a setup for clotting. And um, oh, by the way, that's our second paper, which has just come out on the persistence of the S1 protein in these white blood cells or monocytes 15 months, 17 months, year and a half after infection in the absence of viral RNA. This is the first time where someone has really found a potential mechanism underlying long COVID. And we know it's a major mechanism because when we disrupt those two pathways, the, the pathway of circulating monocytes that, that can cross the blood-brain barrier when we inhibit their uh, migration and we also inhibit their binding to blood vessels, patients get better. So can you take that, that back and explain to us that mechanism in sort of as lay terms as possible? <laughs> sure. So what happens really is these, these, these cells, these monocytes, um, I worked with them in HIV. Uh, I was able to infect uh, this class of monocytes called intermediate monocytes with HIV. Not true monocytes, but a subpopulation of a subpopulation of white blood cells. And then in 2009, we published a paper where those cells were infected by hepatitis C. So, you know, I used to call them the, the garbage can of post-infectious conditions in the human body. And so we looked there and indeed we found the SARS-CoV-2 S1 protein. And that's the paper that's coming out. We've also found the same thing in the same cell type in post-vaccination, but that's an, an entirely different story, but similar mechanism. And those cells have also been implicated in Borrelia, so, so Lyme disease and post-Lyme that these cells can basically eat up either infected cells or pieces of a bacteria or pieces of a virus and then present those on the surface. And the immune system thinks you have an infection when in fact you don't. And that's what's happening uh, in Lyme as well. The, our treatment regimen has been unbelievable in post-Lyme patients. And it's all because it's this one cell type carrying remnants of the bacteria or the virus all around the body, binding to blood vessel endothelium, because that's what they do. And they have the receptors to do that, which we can block with statins. And, you know, that's what's causing their symptoms. Uh, meanwhile, all these other long COVID clinics are chasing symptoms, cardiac symptoms. They go to cardiologists. They have neuro symptoms. Yeah. They go to neurologists. They have GI symptoms. They go to a gastroenterologist. When in fact, when you relieve the inflammation, the majority of those just go away. And that's what's really amazing. So it's not true viral persistence. It's the it's like a mimicking of the virus. Well, it's not just that. It's it, it's persistence of the protein, and you know, much like um, and I've said this many times, much like HIV drove the molecular revolution in in medicine, and of course, you don't do anything in cancer without having a full genetic uh, analysis of the tumor and what tumor mutations there are. I think uh, COVID is bringing on the immunologic revolution in medicine, where we're going to be using sophisticated immunologic uh, technology like proteomics to really interrogate the mechanisms of disease. And, and this is a long COVID is a perfect example where we sorted the cells that express the S1 protein 
15, 17 months after infection. And those cells, we sequenced the, the proteins and, and confirmed using the highly specific uh, mass spectroscopy that it was indeed the S1 protein and got protein sequences. When we took the RNA from those cells and did whole genome SARS-CoV-2 sequencing and showed that those cells only contained fragments of RNA, so nothing that is capable of replicating. So here is an instance where the cells responsible for basically presenting antigens to the immune system were still carrying around SARS-CoV-2 antigen or protein, but in the absence of, of RNA and the, probably the ability to uh, replicate. So what drives the relapsing and remission nature of this disease? Because people talk about this a lot, where we, we feel better and then we'll have a crash. We'll feel better and then we'll have a crash. Well, again, I think when they haven't been treated, we treat the cause. And so yeah. we eliminate these S1-containing cells by keeping them from binding to the blood vessels, which kind of short circuits uh, their lifespan and then they die off, then you don't see the relapses. I think untreated, yes, you're gonna have uh, relapses and, and, and periods where you feel okay. And in our latest paper, we actually discuss why exercise makes symptoms worse. And it's because Exercise, we looked into the exercise physiology literature, exercise mobilizes these monocytes, makes them travel all over the place. So it's no surprise to us that exercise is making people feel worse for the next couple of days after they do that. But if you remove these cells or the cells containing the S1 protein, the second phase of our treatment program is getting people back to activity and exercising. So what we do is we treat for four to six weeks. We, we get rid of the residual S1 protein. Then we, for the next two weeks, we say, okay, step up your exercise or your activity, start walking, hiking, lifting weights or whatever while on medication. And if you tolerate that, we'll take you off. And that's where we're seeing long-term disease-free or symptom-free life. I mean, we, basically after that, we say, you know, go live your life. And that's not to say, this is a really important concept, especially for long haulers whose ultimate fear is that it's going to come back, right? The so-called relapses. Well, how do you know the relapses aren't what we call now third-party infections? I mean, the late in the summer, we had to deal with allergies. Allergies inflamed everything, made things worse for some individuals. Late summer is the GI uh, viral season, adenovirus, enterovirus. People were getting mycoplasma or walking pneumonia. Some people were then getting infected by Delta. So they had acute infection. And so our diagnostic panel could sort through whether there was markers of acute infection. So basically, because what is happening is your entire body is inflamed from this, you have then any other source of inflammation, be they the allergies or whatever, and you have the same immune response, essentially, because you're just piling inflammation on top of inflammation. Yeah, fuel the fire. And your treatment protocol reduces that inflammation. Yeah. Specifically, how? So, you know, we chose drugs, number one, that not only block 
sort of migration of these monocytes. But most importantly, the CCR5 antagonists, they reprogram macrophages. And macrophages in, in humans is very prominent in COVID. And it makes cytokines like IL-6, TNF-alpha. Um, these don't make anybody feel better, okay? And then, uh, especially IL-6, which is elevated in rheumatoid arthritis, people get muscle and joint pain. So we can actually tell by their profile. I'll go on a call and just having looked at their labs, but I've never met the person, I'll say, I bet, I bet you're not feeling well. And I bet you have joint and muscle aches and you have brain fog and this. And they're like, how did you know? And I said, I knew by looking at your labs. And the other thing is when these cells bind to the blood vessel endothelium, they increase interleukin-2 and interferon gamma, which the computer pulled out during machine learning as being the numerator on the long hauler index, right? And that was from literature from 2013 that we had no idea existed. But the fact is that um, binding of these immune cells to the blood vessels causes increase in type one cytokines. It also increases VEGF, which causes blood vessel growth. But in addition, VEGF causes peripheral neuropathy. So there's a lot of people with numbness and tingling and uh, weakness. But here's the thing. This drug Maraviroc has been shown to decrease Rantes, which is CCL5, interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, VEGF, and this soluble CD40 ligand, which is our marker for activated platelets, and blood clotting. So there's one drug that lowers five of the most important symptom-causing cytokines. And is that a drug that was already on the market, or is that something that you have developed specifically? It's FDA approved for blocking HIV entry into cells in HIV positive individuals. But, but it's not an immunosuppressant or it is, it, does it completely no, suppress the immune system? I think that's the biggest misconception because I'm, I'm really against using steroids in immunosuppressants in a disease that we don't know what the status of the virus is, okay? Especially in acute infection. Yeah, people are using dexamethasone to to keep from having tissue damage from this inflammation. But was it doing in terms of creating reservoirs for the virus that may be long lived and lead to potentially long COVID? We don't know yet, but I have my suspicions. The great thing about CCR5 antagonists are their immune modulators, okay? They don't suppress the immune system. They don't uh, inhibit activation of immune cells in response to other infections. Yet they still do the job in terms of, as we said in our first paper on acute COVID, restoring immune homeostasis, which means bringing the immune system back to normal. And, and then obviously the statins are important in terms of atherosclerosis and um, heart attacks, cholesterol has now been clearly demonstrated to be attributed to inflammation of the blood vessels that set up, that create the environment for atherosclerotic plaques to form. So the, the statins also reduce the inflammation of the blood vessels, and they also happen to inhibit this fractalkine, fractalkine receptor pathway by which these monocytes bind to the blood vessels. And so 
when people say, well, how did you come up with this drug regimen and why? And, oh, you're just throwing uh, wet paper against uh, a wall and seeing what sticks. The answer is absolutely not. What we've done is we've identified the underlying mechanism. We're using drugs to interfere with the underlying mechanisms and pathways, and that's effective. So that actually gives us gratification that at least our hypothesis is a pretty big one. It's not to say that there may not be autoantibodies or some other things at play in long COVID, but this by the response of our patients has to be uh, a major, major underlying mechanism of, of long COVID. It's a, just a, basically a two-drug protocol, Marvarac and statins. Is that right? Basically, I mean, we'll, we'll throw in some severe cases. We'll throw in fluvoxamine, which also inhibits cytokine production. So um, that's part of our regimen. Fluvoxamine satisfies that um, activity in terms of um, lowering uh, some additional cytokine levels. What what have your figures been in terms of your results of, of treating people on a four to six weeks regimen? So I, I'd say, you know, 85 to 90 percent of patients are better than 80 percent uh, recovered. Wow. Ones are completely recovered. We have patients who are climbing mountains and we have a handful that there may be an overlap with um, ME-CFS because they had chronic herpes viruses and long COVID actually causes a decrease in the CD8 T cells. And so now they got reactivation of Epstein-Barr or CMB in addition to long COVID. So those tend to be a little bit more um, complicated, but I would say the ones that just have straight away long COVID are responding really, really well. And um, we've already come out uh, in public and said, listen, 2021 was devoted to Number one, establishing what is long COVID immunologically, and number two, establishing what the underlying uh, cause is and the underlying mechanism. 2022 is going to be devoted to sharing the outcomes of our 13, now it's actually 14,000 um, patients and sharing um, you know, how they responded, how long they responded, all those things we'd like to know. And then uh, 2022, we'll also see a, um, a randomized controlled clinical study using uh, Maraviroc and statins. We've already announced that. Okay, fantastic. This idea that basically, Bruce, you're offering people like Emily and I a cure rather than management because we yeah. are given management, we are given antihistamines, we're giving cardiac drugs to manage our symptoms, but no one is right. really looking at the mechanism, which is fantastic to hear that you and your company is. They're, they're not. And I still see an abundance of use of steroids, which really bothers me because the patients with chronic fatigue or, you know, these, these covert herpes family viruses will, will get reactivation. And then you start this vicious cycle. And yeah, what we're seeing is, like you said, patients with so-called POTS go to cardiologists and then with, they have dysautonomia, they go to neurologists and then they go to rheumatologists. And you know what? They're all being treated symptomatically. And the reality is when you relieve the generalized inflammation, I would say the majority of that goes away. I mean, obviously nerves, they take a little bit of time uh, once they've been injured to recover, but they do recover. And these patients are getting back to normal everyday lives. And 
And I think that's what's been really important to us. And I'm happy to say that we are now live with the major reference lab, SynLab, in EU and the UK. We've engaged a large physician group in the UK uh, and we'll be launching our program in the UK. And we probably have 2,000 patients uh, in the queue. They've been waiting for quite a while. Thank you for your patience. Um, for us to get started, but you know what, um, you know, there's a lot more to, you know, developing a program. Um, you know, we, there's three steps to our program, obviously the website and getting tested, um, that had to be set up and there's business arrangements associated with that. And then number two is telemedicine. So we've hired now 13 telemedicine physicians, some of whom speak Spanish. We'll get German speaking, French speaking, Portuguese speaking, and, the last piece is getting the physicians on the ground in the UK and the EU that will implement our therapeutic uh, recommendations and manage the patients um, in close concert with IncelDX. So that's the game plan. And uh, I am happy to uh, report that we've made tremendous progress in the last couple of months and we're ready to go in the UK. That's a huge operation though, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, uh, understandably people are, um, are anxious about these things getting started, but there are business aspects to everything. For instance, we want to launch this S1 protein assay where we can, we have been measuring S1 protein and monocytes in patients at IncelDX through our research use only program, but everyone wants it in the reference labs that are approved by all the regulatory agencies. And we're close to that, but it took forever to negotiate these deals for an antibody to S1. I mean, one company wanted a million dollars up front for the rights to even use the antibody, right? So you know, it's been a long negotiation, but I think we're we're close to being able to offer that assay because that gives us an idea of where you are in the continuum and how close you are to fully getting rid of these cells carrying. Um, the, and and the, that's basically the test that you are doing that that shows the marker. We, we already have the biomarker um, AI machine learning test that's already offered. And now SynLab in, in Europe, so it's offered in the EU, the UK. Is that all specific to you, though, or is that something that we can go and ask or our listeners can go and ask their doctor for? They can. Well, they can. You register on our, still register on our uh, website, www.covidlonghaulers.com. But now we have two separate lists of uh, U.S. patients um, EU patients on a country by country basis and UK patients. And then those lists will be sent to SynLab and then they send out an email blast to all the various patients and let them know where they can go to get their blood drawn and, and, and get their tests run. I'm just going to drag us back a little bit here. You mentioned that you were the first people to talk about clotting and endothelial damage. Now, my understanding of what we've just discussed is that you're saying it's a symptom, not a cause of long COVID. And so people who have tried uh, anticoagulants and apheresis, is that going to help them get better? Or is that just, will the long COVID persist? And then we've come out and said, 
before we institute treatment, they are a setup for clotting. We have markers in our panel that say, oh, you have activated platelets and you have blood vessel inflammation. I mean, nothing could be more prime for clots, right? But the beauty is Maraviroc and statins lower platelet activation and lower vascular inflammation. So that clotting risk no longer exists. And yes, we, we've heard about, you know, the apheresis. And we actually had a patient who went over um, to Germany for apheresis and ended up in the emergency room in Germany and called us from the emergency room wanting to get back on uh, our program. I don't mean to disparage anything that, that may work, but I think it's a little invasive and I think it's a little drastic when um, medication can basically do the same thing and you don't have to travel anywhere. Yeah, I think that's the, the sort of dangerous thing is that, I mean, I'm 21 months in, you're pretty desperate by this stage. You just want to have yeah. some kind of level of life back. Sure. And so then people see these lifelines and are just grabbing hold of them. What we're trying to do is really present a balanced view of the information so that's that right. people can try and get treatment or even if it means that you're waiting another three months until you get treatment that's right. that you can do it sensibly and do it safely with the science behind it because that's a lot right. of the studies and things we're seeing are such small groups and, and i think the other thing that's been really worrisome for me in the states is long haulers getting monoclonal antibody therapy there's no virus left monoclonals were intended for that early virologic phase in COVID and they're taking monoclonal antibodies, yet they're resistant to get the vaccine for good reason. Because if you still have S1 containing monocytes and you get a vaccine that is against S1 and it's going to elicit a very powerful anti-S1 reaction, much like the monoclonal antibodies, I mean, you're going to have a horrible, horrible immunologic reaction. And indeed, we okay. had we had at least four patients end up in the emergency room after going to get long hauler patients who after getting monoclonal antibodies. It's just crazy from an ineologic standpoint. You might as well just mainline, you know, um, you know, uh, gasoline because it's just adding fuel to the fire that's that already exists. And so what what is it, what are your thoughts on on not your thoughts on vaccination? Obviously everyone should get vaccinated. I had incredibly bad reactions to my first two I bet. uh vaccinations and I am right now kind of stuck in my house because I'm terrified of Omicron but I don't think it's sensible right now for me to go and get a booster. And I had the booster and my cardiac symptoms were the worst I'd ever experienced. Yeah it was bad. Exactly and you know what in the beginning of 2021 newspapers in the states came out and said that vaccination makes long haulers better which is absolutely a fallacy. Um, I would say 80% of our long haulers got much, much worse. The ones who did get better, um, got better for two or three days and then went back to pre-vaccination levels or worse. So whoever was doing the reporting for the newspapers was asking patients a day or two after they got the vaccine, how do they feel? They might feel well, but then you know, we had to pick up the pieces a week later when they went back to their pre-vaccination levels. That said, we are uh, pro-vaccination. 
But what we want to do is we want to restore the immune system back to normal. Okay. We want to uh, eliminate the S1 proteins from their monocytes. When they go in for the vaccine, we're going to put them on statins. We may even put them on uh, Maraviroc. We're going to put them on baby aspirin. We're going to prepare them to have the vaccine um, and, and protect their blood vessels. That's absolutely critical. See, that's interesting because I spoke to my cardiologist after I had the vaccine and was quite poorly for about two or three weeks. And he said to me, I wish you told me that you were going to have it because I would have put you on colchicine and uh, evabradine to kind of help you get through this rough period. Obviously, it's just that was just for my heart. But yeah, and I don't I don't think colchicine is the answer, um, but I do think a statin um and either fluvoxamine or a Maraviroc uh, would have been a good alternative to prevent uh, the inflammation that would have um, resulted from the vaccine without immunosuppressing you. What statin do you tend to recommend? When we use Maraviroc, we use Prevastatin because they use two different metabolic pathways in the liver. Um, but we have used um, Maraviroc and Atorvastatin, which is uh, Lipitor especially in kids. Um, in, in children, there's uh, studies on the safety of Maraviroc in the pediatric population. So unlike any other CCR5 antagonist, Maraviroc is the only one with safety data in children. And atorvastatin, there's several studies of its safety in children. And with Delta, we're seeing a lot of um, pediatric long haulers secondary to uh, Delta infection. Is that because the kids have been more exposed and when, yes. when during Alpha, they were more protected because we kept them out of school? That's right. And um, I was talking to one family where there's a family of four, two kids. Uh, the father got COVID and the two kids got COVID. The mother didn't, and it was all Delta. The father and the kids got, all three of them got long COVID. The mother didn't even get infected and, of course, didn't get long COVID. So there, that's telling me there's a, there's a genetic component in there somewhere. Um, we just haven't had time to um, dig into that and see what, what is really going on. Do you think that's a genetic component in the contraction of COVID as well as in COVID? Yes. As well as in long COVID? Because we yes. have discussed previously that it seems like some people are somehow immune. Well, uh, I believe that there are there's genetic factors that affect all of this. And we hear over and over that long haulers in the main with the with the POTS, with the cardiac, with the neurological issues and then brain fog, they most of them had COVID very mildly. Yeah. They didn't exactly. were not hospitalized, they were not um, right. under any treatment. I had it extremely mildly. I had three days of chills. I didn't right. even crack a fever. That's the scary part of Omicron and, and, and Delta. The data, you know, saying, oh, well, you just get a mild disease, you know, no big deal. Well, you know what? I don't think anyone wants to be part of that 30% of people who get long, long COVID. And that is what we have been saying. It might be, yeah, it might it, be the acute bit might be. Oh fine, yeah. But I, this know, is. I just got the sniffles and I just got, you know, 
a little lot loss of taste and smell no big deal you know i was better in three days but i feel like you know some of those individuals at least put them on a statin and protect their blood vessels and uh, you know we could save the the big guns till later but um I do think it might make sense to treat individuals who have mild disease with, with statins for a period of time to um, protect their blood vessels from the S1 protein. Do you think we might have some underlying autoimmune condition? You know what, that, that's always a big question. And my big response to autoantibodies is, number one, what symptoms are they causing? Is there cause and effect? Because all of a sudden, we're looking for a lot of things that we never looked for. And I don't know if it's a red herring, right? Here's this autoantibody, but what is it really doing? Is it, is it causing all these symptoms that you're having? And, and I haven't re- seen really good cause and effect data and, and or data where you remove the autoantibody by IVIG or plasmapheresis and the symptoms go away, right? The other thing I'm worried about as a pathologist, uh, and in particular a clinical pathologist, is that when somebody is inflamed and you do an antibody assay in a plastic plate, everything's sticky. So the rate of false positives in antibody determinations in somebody who has significant inflammation, I think are very unreliable. So... I always am cautious about um, discussion of autoantibodies. Do I think they exist in long COVID? Some patients, sure. Um, But I want to see cause and effect, and I want to see repeats to confirm that that's actually not a false positive. It's interesting because we spoke to an immunologist who was saying, because we were saying, okay, well, if you've got asthma, if you've got allergies, you're more prone to long COVID. But her response was, well, look, look at the amount of people that do have asthma. Yeah, one in three Chances, people. One in three. And then look at the amount of people that get long COVID. It's also 30%. So the chances are that the two will collide. So that's not a, that's not a given. It's coincidence. No, it, it's, not, it's not a given. And, um, and maybe asthmatics have an overactive immune system to start with. And... Um, but, you know, again, you can't, you can't make those types of uh, comparisons. You're going to find overlap in some of these um, conditions. And it doesn't mean there's, again, cause and effect, cause and effect. That's what's so reassuring about what we've done. We found a cause and people can question what the cause is. But when we treat the cause, patients get better. And your explanation of it and the way that it is, the whole body system and the way that it is driven inflammation and just some of the words that keep um, recurring as you speak. For me, I keep thinking, oh, well, that explains why I've been feeling like the blood vessels, because I've kept explaining to people that it feels like the blood vessels in my head are really constricted. And I, it feels like, I'm, like I've got something that it's hard for the blood to pass through and I can hear the blood in my head. And then you're told that tinnitus is simply in your head. It doesn't feel like it's in your head when every time you get these symptoms, it feels like your whole body is inflamed. No, Emily, you're absolutely right. In fact, when I did an interview with um, Dr. Drew, I said, all of my patients come in and they go like this. This is holding your head. And he said, maybe that should be the universal sign of long COVID. That a patient comes in, they do this. You're like, oh, you're long COVID. (laughs) 
you know, because I, it, uh, it's very, very real. The one thing that you said that is actually antithetical is that this inflammation in the brain, the binding of the monocytes actually causes vasodilatation. And you know what? Everyone thinks that vaso, you have a headache because of vasoconstriction. You have migraines, vasoconstriction. No, it's the exact opposite. You have headaches because of vasodilatation. You have, uh, head, you have migraines because of vasodilatation. It, it, it used to be called in medical school the CEO syndrome, where you're a CEO of some high-powered company, and you finally go on holiday to an island, and you're drinking a drink that has an umbrella in it, right? And they have the worst headache of their life. The reason is they're relaxing, their blood vessels are dilating, alcohol plus you know, relaxation, and they have the worst headache of their life. And, and remember, some of the old drugs for headaches, Excedrin, used to have caffeine, which caused vasoconstriction. And this inflammation caused by these monocytes causes vasodilatation. Wow. That's the cause of headaches. That's the cause of brain fog. That's the cause of tinnitus. And we call Maraviroc the brain fog and tinnitus buster because we had one guy who five days after he started taking it felt so well, he went on holiday to Florida, walking along the beach and said for the first time in six months, um, he doesn't have any ringing in his ears. Oh, that's spoopy, so nice. So yes, there is a solution. Um, and that solution is to um, actually relieve the inflammation and um, eliminate the vasodilatation. Other long haulers will say they have hot, cold insensitivity. And that is all about blood vessels, blood vessels, blood vessels, blood vessels being dilated. So when you're out in the cold, you feel cold. When you're in the heat, you feel heat because the body's not able to thermoregulate by um, altering the uh, the the flow and the diameter of your blood vessels. Well, what about the uh, tachycardia that so many talk about? Same thing. Same you know thing. what happens when you dilate your blood vessels? You decrease your blood pressure. What happens when you decrease your blood pressure? Your heart rate goes up. I mean, this is just normal yeah. physiology. And then they apply all these fancy terms. Oh, you have POTS and you have dysautonomia. And to me, what I tell uh, our patients is these are just descriptive terms. These are not things that you have to worry about and go look up in every you know, website you can possibly find. They are part and parcel to the fact that you have generalized inflammation. So here's a question that worries me is that the longer we are untreated, are we less likely to recover fully? Or can you can you predict no. that we will be treated? No. We can. I, I, would, I would say, like I said, I, I think we've had patients at four months. We've had patients at 17 months. Um, they recover. And, you know, like, like I said, some that may have some neuropathies, neuropathies may take, you know, an extra month or maybe extra two months to, to get better, but they will get better. And we had one patient who wasn't getting better. And now there's reports that COVID can cause um, Guillain-Barre. So the, the numbness and weakness that he was having in his lower extremities could easily have been a mild form of Guillain-Barre and not something attributable to VEGF, for instance, elevation, which can cause peripheral neuropathy. So, 
yes, you do get better. I think there's also some patients though that didn't have mild disease during acute COVID, um, a few that had severe disease that became long COVID, and and they have some they have some damage that that may or may not reverse itself. Some scarring in the lungs, or one person I think was having problems with their vocal cords, but this was all part and parcel to, you know, a really bad course of uh, acute infection. Now, I know that the NIH, your governing body, have given a lot of money to research in the U.S. for long COVID. But when you go to the U.S., nobody really knows about it. They don't. And here, when they talk about this Omicron outbreak, no one is talking about long COVID. No, yet, I, the government are completely blind to it. It, it drives me crazy. But this is a pandemic within a pandemic because thirty percent of you know five yeah. million people is a lot it, of people. As as I said in Rome at the International COVID Summit, this is both a uh, healthcare and economic emergency. So, um, and it is, uh, and at some point we're gonna have to address it a lot better than tossing a billion dollars out there for research grants. I mean, frankly, who has the time to write a research grant? You know, what we need is something like Operation Warp Speed, where you write your plan and certain milestones. And once you get a little bit of money, and if you make some milestones, you get more money. I mean, this is a pandemic. No one has time for the usual 18-month grant cycle at um, the NIH or probably even the same at the NHS, I would suspect. I think they've offered quite considerably less money on the it's NHS. 1. It's 1.2 million or something ridiculous. Oh, my God. I mean, it's pitiful. That is crazy. But I hear that a lot of the NIH money is going to programs like graded exercise therapy. I know. It's absurd. And it's going going to name institutions like Hopkins, Johns Hopkins and Mayo. and, And all of them have these physical therapy and exercise programs. I'm like, why don't you just stab a knife in their back while you're at it? Because that is the thing here is that people are, I've still not got my long COVID clinic referral, but people are only literally being offered, uh, what is it, physio? And, and we have seen, we've spoken to people and we have seen that there are certain benefits to certain, some of these, to some of these things, but uh, physio, breathing exercises and talking to a counsellor because actually it seems to be that it's in our heads. That's ridiculous. And this Maverick and the statins, are you, are you just, is the dosage normal? Are you just like, here's the unusual dosage or does it depend on the person or? No. It's, it's a very typical dosage. Obviously, the dosage that we use is, um, is a little bit different in the pediatric population. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's been working and it's, and it's been working great. We haven't had to do any change in dose and we use the lowest possible dose of statins. And, um, you know, it's been very, very effective. Just to clarify, once you come to the UK, presumably the the treatment protocol here will cost us money. It's not going to be something that is somehow in line with the NHS. No, it's it's not. But um, our first pilot study in um, the UK, uh, we were able to find sources of Maraviroc for far less than we pay for in the United States. So I think... And they are drugs that are available on the NHS, so it's not inconceivable that it can... Yeah, and we, we, we have we have other options. In our armamentarium, we probably have about 13 different drugs. So we'll find a regimen that um, that works. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak uh, on this topic because um, I don't think that we've gotten the exposure that, that we should have. Um, and maybe because we're a company, um, 
you know, we, we work very hard to keep uh, costs down of what we do. So just because we're a company doesn't mean we don't want to do good things and make it accessible to uh, a lot of people. My big takeaway really is, you know, that any treatment that we are receiving is all experimental from the very basics, like the histamine therapy that we were given. It's off license. We're being treated for our symptoms. The hepatoresis. Interestingly, from what we read yesterday, there are now trials into histamine. But this is, you know, 22 months in. But we do need doctors like Pretorius and Dr. Patterson and Dr. Glynn, who are actually, you know, trying to help. And willing to go out on a limb. Yeah. Patients as well as the doctors who are willing to see what happens. Everyone needs to make their own decisions. You know, we are right at the frontier of, of this new disease and and people trying to help. And there are going to be people who get it wrong. But amongst them, some people will get it right. Someone will get it right. And we have to go through this process of trialing things before we can actually work out what, what, what is going to be effective. And um, as we've said regularly, we are not advocating any specific treatment. We are trying to talk to a broad spectrum of the people working in this field and bring you their work, their opinions and and the results of the things that they've been working on. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.